This conference will now be recorded. Hi, good afternoon, uh, and welcome to our limited jurisdiction update section. Uh, this is part one. Uh, the reason it is part one is because uh, we do have, uh, we, we will have to do a second part after the rules meeting in late August. So uh, we had such a huge legislative session this year because the legislature ended quickly last year. Uh, so um, there, there was a, just a great deal of material. We're covering the rules that uh, came into effect starting this year and uh, the administrative orders, uh, some, some discipline, and uh, just one case. The presenter, in addition to me, is Judge Anna Huberman, Huberman. and Judge Huberman uh, is, has uh, just been elected as the presiding justice of the peace, uh, and Judge Lenore Driggs is the associate presiding judge, uh, justice of the peace, so let's congratulate them. And we will go ahead and get started. Or, uh, Judge Huberman, was there anything you wanted to say before we got started? Uh, oh, no, no. I, um, so there's nothing I want to say. Let's just try to get through the materials, and hopefully there will be a little bit of time uh, at the end for questions. Um, there is definitely a lot of stuff to go through today. Yes, so. All right, so we're going to start with some discipline first, and uh, the first one is number 2278, and this is one of my pet peeves, is the statutes for protective orders do allow the defendant to request a hearing in writing while the protective order is in effect, and a pre-issuance hearing is not a hearing requested in writing while the, the protective order is in effect. That is set by the court. It's not requested by the defendant, so that doesn't qualify as the defendant's hearing. Uh, in this instance, a judge denied a request for a hearing after a pre-issuance hearing because of court policy. The Conduct Commission sent her a letter reminding her that she must exercise independent judgment, uh, judgment independent of what the law may or may not require, rather than relying on court policy. Uh, so my advice here is, uh, I after a pre-issuance hearing, I tell someone that they can appeal. Uh, and if they appeal, we handle the appeal. If they go ahead and request a, a contested hearing, then that matter should be set to a contested hearing. Uh, they are entitled to that. Uh, this, these um, provisions made sense prior to it becoming more clear uh, through the rules and through case law that uh, matters were uh, limited what is contained in the petition and now that they're contained to what's contained in the petition it, it makes less sense uh, but um, that that is still the law uh, I have not done any rules petitions to try to fix it because it has to be fixed in statute and um, uh, I'm kind of scared of going to the legislature with anything all right judge Huberman. all right so this um this first opinion um, is actually, uh, there's some background noise if everyone can please mute your phone. Um, 
this was actually uh, a complaint that was dismissed, but with a warning. Uh, so in this case, it was a judge who was not following the COVID-19 safety protocol. Um, and upon being, uh, I found out that the, that the staff had complained about him, um, he left that of the staff. And so uh, the warning was uh, to remind that he had the obligation to follow all the administrative orders uh, from the court and to be patient and dignified in his dealings with the staff, uh, that, it should not, that the staff should not perceive anything done by the judge as retaliation. Um, and then the next case also has to do with following administrative orders, but this case uh, was not dismissed. Um, but it also says that the judge must comply with an administrative order. Um, the basis for this is that the Arizona Constitution uh, indicates that the Supreme Court has administrative supervision over all the courts. Um, and then the Supreme Court also has the power to make rules relative to all procedural matters in any court. Uh, so whether the, the judge agrees or not with the Supreme Court mandate, um, they have to comply with them. Rule 1.1 of the uh, Judicial Code of Conduct requires judges to comply with the law, but within the definitions of the code itself, uh, the definition of law includes the court rules. Um, so the judges um, must comply with uh, the, the administrative orders of the Supreme Court for this reason. Um, and then additionally in this case, um, there was an issue about reading and, and answering the email and the commission uh, ruled that the judges required to reasonably cooperate with other judges and court officials in the administrative in the administration of court business. And so this included uh, being able to read email because the failure to uh, timely read the email um, goes against this rule that is to cooperate uh, with the administration of court business. All right, next we're gonna talk about an ethics advisory opinion. This was the only opinion issued in uh, 2020. And uh, it uh, I'm actually the one who requested it. Uh, we did have a pro tem who, who's watching today who believed that it was possible that the ADA overruled the unauthorized practice of law rules. Uh, and so um, we did submit this, these questions to the Conduct Commission. The Conduct Commission came back and said that the ADA did not override the uh, the unauthorized practice of law requirements. Uh, they do have a discussion on accommodations. We also address the, the awkward situation of parents uh, who we require to be there for juveniles, and we certainly can allow them to sit next to the juveniles for emotional support. They can whisper back and forth as much as they want to the juveniles, but uh, they cannot uh, they cannot represent the the juveniles. So Turn 
Charlie, uh, cutting in and out. You know, that, that is I just an important thing to keep in mind. If you have any questions, I did provide a link to the, uh, to the uh, including called Who May Appear, uh, and that does break down all of the rules uh, on who can appear and uh, in those proceedings, and you, you should keep that as a cheat sheet. All right, Charles, we're going to talk cutting, about one case. Charles, you're cutting and in and out. I'm cutting in and out? Okay. Yeah, you are. All right, let me phone in. I don't think it's Judge just Judge do you want to take over while I phone in? Sure, just throw me into taking over something I didn't prepare for. <laughs> um, so there was this recent case law um, that makes um, any moving violation where the result was a death qualifies for jury uh, for a jury trial. Um, it is not uh, for physical serious physical injuries, just for um, for death in um, and. I, you know, ever since I became a judge, I've been hearing that sometimes you do get these uh, misdemeanors in court where uh, a moving violation caused the death and they do show up in court as a misdemeanor. I have never had one, but I do know that uh, many of my colleagues on the bench have had these, so they do uh, occur occasionally. Um, so this is something to uh, to keep in mind. Um, okay, and, and thank you for pinch hitting. Uh, the, <laughs> what to keep in mind here is that statute does provide for serious physical injury or death, uh, and the case does involve a death, not a serious physical injury, so you can probably still deny jury trials for serious physical injury, but you should grant it in case there's a death. The reason we're only talking about one case is because we've got a 90-minute podcast and webinar that uh, where Judge Jim Blake goes through all of the cases in the last year. Uh, there's the YouTube link, there's the podcast link. Uh, so please go ahead and watch or listen to that. Uh, he only gets about 20, 25 minutes at the judicial conference, so it's really wonderful to give him a whole 90 minutes where he can spend uh, much more time going into detail. And I'll turn it back to Judge Huberman. All right, so we're gonna talk about administrative order. Um, uh, I, well, somehow this just became a little outdated, but uh, the Supreme Court Administrator of Order 202177 is the same original administrative order back from the beginning of the pandemic that has had its um, different, um, um, it's been updated several times, you know, according to the, to the response. And there is actually an update yesterday. It came out yesterday. I'm trying to look at my notes, um, which is 2021-109. So in this, in, in the new update um, that does uh, talk about moving and transitioning now into phase three, um, it still maintains the uh, the um, the striking of judges as a matter of right is still suspended. 
The preemptory strikes for jury trials have been reduced, and those are still reduced. And then time has been excluded, no longer excluded, um, as of March 31st of this year. Um, but specifically for evictions, uh, we need to deal with the administrative order about evictions. Uh, so this we're referring to um, the exclusion times mostly for our purposes for criminal cases. Um, just so everyone is aware, um, there is um, an actual rule petition to eliminate the change of judge by right uh, altogether. Um, right now it's still only suspended based on this administrative order. Um, and then after the preemptory strikes, there's actually a couple of competing rule petitions, one of them that changes significantly the way peremptory strikes uh, would be allowed. And um, there's another rule out there to actually just doing away with peremptory strikes altogether. So those will be heard um, you know, on the rule agenda. And, and uh, when we do the part two, I guess we'll deal with that. Um, and then uh, the, Maricopa, the, the Maricopa administrative order, I am waiting for a new one at any time today, uh, maybe it'll come in before we're done with this uh, with this session. Um, but from what we've heard, the new order is going to allow uh, people to go to be able to enter the building as of Monday. Uh, but the courts are still encouraged to continue doing everything virtually, uh, so there will not be a need to have that many people coming in. If they do come into the court. Uh, be aware that mask require, the mask requirement is still in place. They have to have a mask entering the building, and in certain areas of the court, uh, one of them is the courtroom. So the mask required, uh, and that, that will not go away with this updated administrative order that is coming. And for now, social distancing is still six feet apart. Uh, that may change in August uh, to less, but right now we're still at six feet. And then um, as to um, the, I thought the marijuana violations, um, the, there is, there used to be an administrative order that has now been replaced by this one, where the Superior Court uh, declined jurisdiction over civil traffic matters for juveniles. So they are, they, it was just an administrative order by which all civil traffic violations were declined and all of them came either to the city courts or to the justice courts. Uh, they have replaced that administrative order now because they do want to make clear that Maricopa County is keeping jurisdiction over marijuana violations for juveniles. We are talking about juveniles under 18. Those cases will go to the Superior Court, to the Juvenile Division, if the ticket comes together with a civil traffic violation or any other type of violation, all of those will go, they won't, they won't uh, divide them out, they will all go to the Juvenile Court. The, the minors, so marijuana is permitted in certain amounts for anyone over 21. So the violations that we will see in our court are going to be the minors from 18 to 20 year olds who are not allowed uh, to possess marijuana 
But if they do, it is only a simple violation. Um, and then I think uh, the, the, the charges are talk a little bit further about uh, the, the marijuana thing. But the important thing is that everyone understands that we keep the minors, the juveniles are going to Superior Court as well as expungement. And then this is a, uh, a an administrative order from last year uh, during the pandemic when the post office uh, stopped wanting to deliver in hand mail because they, they, because of social distancing requirements they were uh, just on, on the on the on the card uh, for the certified or the, re the return receipt uh, were just indicating that it had been delivered. And so the Supreme Court uh, just has this administrative order to indicate that that process that was used by the post office is accepted in our courts as proof of certified mail. Oh, is this still me? Um, yes. Sorry. And then um, this is. Then we have a standing administrative order in our Maricopa County Courts as to how to deal when we get requests for jury trials and eviction cases. Uh, because juries are now requested only on demand, uh, we don't have uh, jury panels just being brought in every week like they used to be. Uh, there can sometimes be an issue on being able to accommodate a jury request on short notice for a jury trial. So, um, the, we, we have an administrative order that indicates how to go about it. Um, we, they, it could be a problem because as a last resort, these cases do go to the Superior Court, and the Superior Court would lend us uh, with their courtrooms and their jurors to do this. Uh, but it appears that the Superior Court will not do that currently. Um, I, you know, we haven't had any requests for jury trials and eviction cases. Uh, so I don't know how much of an issue this might be, uh, but that's just something that I guess will come to me. And now as the, as the new presiding judge, um, if something like this were, were to happen and uh, the jury just need to be moved. Um, but just as a reminder to everyone uh, that there will only be a jury trial in the eviction case if there is a matter of fact that can be heard by a jury. Um, and so in cases where there is not an issue of fact that can be determined by a jury, um, even if the party requests a jury trial, uh, we, do, we, we would not grant the jury trial in that case. And then, um, slide 17. Yeah, it's the computer's catching up. Oh, okay, sorry. So this, uh, this has to do with community restitution. Um, this statute uh, actually amends um, statutes in the juvenile, and, uh, refers to juvenile, uh, to criminal, and to traffic. So Title VIII, Title Thirteen, and Title XXVIII. Uh, in all of those cases, it allows that the rate for community service uh, be considered at the minimum wage. It used to be set at 10 hours, at $10 an hour, um, and then this way, tying it to the 
to the minimum wage allows the the rate change without a need to have to take the legislation every time we want to change the amount. Um, and so now the amount is the minimum wage rounded uh, to the uh, rounded up to, to a full dollar. So in the example here, the minimum wage right now is at twelve dollars and fifteen cents an hour. So community service will be credited at thirteen dollars an hour. Um, and then if the minimum wage goes up again, then the community restitution uh, will be uh, will, will be paid off at the rate of the of the new minimum wage. And you want to talk about that? And the oh, so it, it, the, the statute was was it in in the part that amends the civil traffic actually uses the language that the defendant must agree and the court shall determine the location. And of course, this right away gave me heartburn because I don't know what that means that the court can determine the location. I don't know what was intended to be. Uh, my concern is that anyone would use this to, to think that they can actually choose an agency or a specific place for the defendant to do the community service. Um, we've heard that there's been issues in the past that one judge wanted uh, the, the community service to be done at a certain uh, project that was the judge's project or another judge was required seeing it to be at a specific church. I think for reasons that I probably don't need to explain to this group that that would be incredibly problematic um, and that when it says location uh, the, the the best practice would be just to say that it should be done at a nonprofit agency in Arizona or in Maricopa County um, and not go further than that. I see that Jerry turned on his camera to give a further indication on this. Yes, Judge, the reason this was put in is that there are situations where uh, violators choose uh, a location or a, um, a, a business, uh, or want to call it, that the court does not approve or did not approve, or one that would not provide the necessary documentation to the court. Uh, so the idea is that the judge decides where it's going to be. Now, judge, of course, y'all can give a choice to the defendant or violators to where you go, but it's up to the court. And then one of the senators requested the language, defendant must agree. I don't know of any, I have never heard of any situation where a court orders community restitution and a defendant doesn't want to do it. And the court presses the issue. Uh, he just paid a fine. Uh, but that's the reason for those two uh, provisions. Well, I mean, I, I would suggest that the defendant has to agree if they don't want to go to a specific church. If the if the judge wants someone to go to a Christian church and the person is of another, you know, religion or, or an atheist or whatever and doesn't want to go there, I guess maybe that's where the defendant must agree. I still think that I would stay away from, you know, determining a specific agency where the community service must be done. Um, I think that the court will accept any community service 
as long as it is uh, a nonprofit. I mean, we've had I've had people volunteer in places that are for profit. I won't accept that. Um, but um, but anyway, that's 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 my opinion on it. And then, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I can't actually change the slide right now, so if you just want to keep going. Let me, do you want me to pull up mine and see if I can be the presenter? Uh, I can't change it to you either. Just keep going and just refer to the slide number. All right, well, yeah, so let me actually need to pull up mine to be able to see the slides. All right, so we're going on to slide 19. Yep, I've got um, it back. Okay. All right, so slide 19, this is the license suspension. There will no longer be suspension of licenses for non-payment of civil fines, uh, including uh, commercial driver's license. Um, this is Normally, this was done automatically by our system uh, that suspended fines on, on cases where uh, people missed a payment or were defaulted on their fines, um, but they will no longer be uh, suspension of licenses. And um, for me, the important part here uh, is that the judge may now mitigate mandatory fines uh, if the defendant meets the requirements of hardship. Um, except for DUI fines that cannot be mitigated. Every other fine can now be mitigated. I think anybody who has uh, both hearing officers and, and pro tem, we've all had the cases of the mandatory fines with the registration that they bring in the new registration and still we could go under the $300 fine. So now those fines may be mitigated, but I would suggest that if uh, you're going to mitigate a fine for hardship, there should be a finding of hardship, um, not just reduce the fine automatically. Uh, there should be a note in the file or a finding on the record, but there has to be a finding of hardship. Um, and then there will be a rule that will amend the rules and forms to reflect these changes. All right, uh, and there was a question. Okay. Let's spend some time on marijuana. So House Bill 2171 added two new, two new uh, sections uh, and, a, and a whole new chapter to, uh, to Title 22. 22701 does uh, give the jurisdiction to limited jurisdiction courts for civil marijuana. That's the 18 to 20 year olds. And uh, 22701B does allow civil traffic hearing officers the ability to hear civil violations. 22702 allows for the charging violate, civil violation with a short form filed with the court within 10 days. And 702E does give law enforcement the authority to stop and detain for marijuana violations. And um, on slide 22, this is for JPCs, and uh, th th this is for full-time pro tens. You're, you're not going to be too concerned about JPCs. Slide 23, we will have a webinar 
that will spend a whole hour on expungements in in uh, limited jurisdiction courts for marijuana cases. Those to go into effect on July 12th, and so we will spend uh, a whole hour on that. That is going to be for judges, I assume, are going to make it available to pro tems. If if not, uh, we'll, we will find a way to get you that information. Yeah, I would, uh, you know, I think that the expungement, this is just from my point of view as a, as a judge, uh, the expungement should be pretty straightforward, uh, but you might want to check in with any judge that you are covering for if they want you to deal with the expungement as a, a pro tem, or maybe that should be something that's left to the judge. Uh, just be sure that you clear that um, before because this is something new and, and and then maybe the judge might want to do it themselves. So I would just suggest to the pro tem uh, to inquire with the judge where you're serving. All right. Charles, judge. Yes. Uh, I want to add one thing on, on pro tems. It will be extremely unlikely you receive a petition for expungement on a marijuana case because in Maricopa County, unlike many of the rural counties, uh, possession of marijuana is filed in the Superior Court. And the expungement rules indicate that the uh, uh, petition filed where the case is resolved. What you will see or what you might see is petitions to expunge a possession of drug paraphernalia uh, offense because mm -hmm. those are filed traditionally, from what I understand, on citation into the limited jurisdiction courts. But possession of marijuana itself, you should not see. And if the case resulted in a, an arrest but no charges or citation of no charges, then those must be filed in superior court. All right, Judge Huberman. I was I mean, thank you for clarifying that. I guess we were just so used to tying the expungements both together because we've been doing all of this together with paraphernalia and marijuana that we didn't make that distinction. So um, I appreciate that. Um, but uh, but we do we do occasionally get some cases of marijuana. We used to, um, and we definitely have some some uh, paraphernalia. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm glad that, that Jerry's here uh, because this is another legislative change um, that I think uh, might be a little confusing. It's, it's been confusing for me. Uh, the, the language of the statute in this case is a person who receives time served credit for the mandatory term of incarceration for a violation of this chapter. So this is we're referring to DUI that the chapter that we're referring to is, is the DUI, must serve at least eight consecutive hours for each day of credit. So um, I will say in this that originally uh, we had talked about this being for all jail time on DUI cases. Uh, I, I can tell you that my, the public defender, one of my public defenders in my court, has told me that they interpret this as only being pretrial uh, and not post-conviction time, and at least that's what they're going to argue, so that, that is one thing. And every time I read this, I always think I can read it 
in different ways <laughs> and that it could be just pre-judgment time. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll get your opinion on this in a moment, Jerry, but also mm -hmm. uh, I just want to make clear that we still have to work out. We don't know exactly how we're going to know if it's eight hours. Uh, this for sure will do away with uh, the cases where the attorneys come and ask for uh, credit for the time the person was being investigated for DUI. So to the time that they were arrested but not actually booked into the jail. So those requests will definitely go away because those aren't eight hours. And then the issue is uh, how will we know if there were eight hours or not? Um, that's something that we're just going to uh, have to figure out who has the burden to prove it. If the defendant has the burden to prove that they were there for eight hours or uh, or not. Uh, these are just things that that, um, that I'm constantly thinking about. <laughs> uh, Judge, this, this bill was unfortunately not drafted all that well and is opened up to interpretation. Uh, the intent is, as Judge Huberman just mentioned, it's to avoid the person being given time served, a credit for a day, for time spent in the police department or in the DUI van. Uh, in some jurisdictions, if a person is booked a, on one day, one calendar day, say 11 p.m. and released at 1 a.m. the next calendar day, that's counted as a, as a day. So a person can only spend two hours or a person is booked into jail and then bails out within an hour or two. Those circumstances, I think, led to this bill that required the eight hours. Uh, yeah, if I, if I was involved in it, I wasn't involved until after Bill passed and I, I read it, I would have maybe looked at it and, and suggested some other language. But uh, number one, the main issue is the interpretation of eight hours per every uh, per every day. Let me shut my phone off here. I didn't realize it was, there we go. Um, eight hour, whether eight hours is pre, pre uh, judgment credit or eight hours could be as a, a post-conviction sentence. Uh, the intent is for pretrial incarceration, I believe, but we have to talk to the sponsor. I interpret the way it's written to say for every eight hours you uh, you spend in jail, you can get a day's credit. So if you're booked and you spend 24 hours, you can get um, three days credit. Or if you're sentenced and for every eight hours, you can get three days credit. Other judges will interpret it differently and there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, however, the one thing to be aware of Law only requires uh, credit, say, on, on a DUI, which the, if the sentence is um, the one-day minimum, um, if the nine days is suspended, the law only requires the first day, and the rest is discretionary. Uh, so I think that's going to have to be worked out. Um, it'll be on a case-by-case -case basis, and the statute will be changed probably next year. Uh, as far as burden of proof, I would argue that the defendant has the burden of proof. 
because the defendant is asking for the credit and uh, the um, that's and therefore defendant has to show he was in there for uh, for eight day eight hours. Anyway, those are those are my thoughts uh, on it. Well, I'm I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks this is a confusing statute. Um, I I did um, re request that our best practices committee maybe take a stab at this and maybe come up with some kind of interpretation um, to suggest it to the to, to the bench as to how we best to deal with it. Yeah, and I'd also look at 13712, uh, where a person must get credit for time served uh, pre-incarceration. And that's why, you know, if the, person ser if the person can get credit if he serves the eight hours for the first day. Um, so it kind of depends on how you all interpret it. But yeah, it is, to say the least, somewhat of a mess. Yeah. How I interpret this, or one portion of how I interpret this, is keep in mind that we're not the only ones interpreting it. The jail is going to interpret it. And so I interpret this as if you send someone to jail for one day, the jail is going to keep that person for at least eight hours. So moving on, uh, let's move into Senate Bill 1829, which is a budget bill. And that um, now does require dismissal of a registration violation if the defendant obtains registration. Uh, and so that is quite a different change from what it, uh, what it used to be. It used to be that you had to have your registration in your vehicle, and if you didn't, then you had a, uh, you got the violation. Now that can be dismissed. In fact, it does it requires dismissal. And then House Bill 2296 amended a bunch of different stuff. There is a lot of provisions in there for restricted licenses. I don't think a lot of judges issue restricted licenses. Uh, so that doesn't really affect us, but it does change the penalties for reckless driving. Um, so the penalty for reckless driving, aggressive driving or racing on the highways is modified to require that ADOT suspend instead of revoke the person's driving privilege for one year. Uh, what is the difference? The difference is it is easier to reinstate your license after a suspension than it is after a revocation. And a prior conviction for aggressive driving can be alleged to enhance the sentence for reckless driving. Uh, so the prosecutors, if they want to do that, in addition to a prior reckless, can use a prior aggressive to enhance the sentence, but that is going to have to be filed as a notice of prior conviction. The next bill will result uh, in, in a kumbaya effort uh, because we've now done away with, with the really odd situation that someone can qualify for a set-aside with a reckless driving or a DUI, but not with a simple criminal speed. So Senate Bill 1249, now as of September 29, will allow that all criminal traffic offenses will qualify for set-asides. Uh, keep in mind that MBD never forgets anything, and so those can still be used as priors, and they're still subject to uh, ADOT penalties, uh, such as points and other suspensions. Uh, the bad news that goes along with it is if you do grant a set-aside, we're going to have to do something called the Certificate of Second Chance, uh, and that, uh, if the petitioner 
does not qualify, they can reapply when they do. And what that will do is we'll release the person from all barriers to obtain an occupational license if the person is otherwise qualified, with some exceptions, and releases an employer from liability for negligently hiring the person and a person or entity from liability for providing housing to the person if the liability is based on the existence of the person's prior criminal offense. Uh, I don't think this will cause as much heartburn for us as it would be for Superior Court trying to decide uh, if, uh, if they want to set aside felonies, uh, but this will give us, uh, you know, we will have to give that a second thought. AOC should be creating the forums. They're probably going to need to do a rule petition for this one as well, uh, but at the very least, they will have forums. All right, Judge Huberman. Yeah, and, but again, on that topic, I would like to... Um, Tell the pro tems that uh, you might want to check with your judges um, if you should be granting set asides on on cases. If they if the judge wants the pro tems to be doing that, different judges have different criteria, um, and and that's something that you might want to consult uh, before dealing with those cases. Sometimes what happens is that the staff or the clerks get the case and they just stick it in the basket. They don't make a distinction. Oh, this should be for the judge or for and so you might get things in the basket. Uh, that doesn't mean that you necessarily uh, want to sign it. Uh, maybe you want to consult with the, with the, with the sitting judge. Um, so the arrest procedures, um, this amends the statute uh, that allows that if a person is arrested in one county for an, uh, an offense committed in another county, they can be taken to the nearest or most accessible magistrate in the county where they were arrested, or they can take it back to the county where the offense was committed. Um, again, I don't think this is something we're going to deal with in the COPA. Um, maybe on, on the, you know, on somewhere on the border, um, anyone who has. Uh, is uh, a, a judge who has a precinct that sits on a border with another county, and not my case, but um, I think this, this occurs uh, more frequently uh, in the rural areas. Um, and then again, if it's an arrest, it's an available offense, um, they, uh, upon request of the, of the person who was arrested, they should be taken to the most accessible magistrate who has the authority to admit bail for that offense. I think where you're going to see this where you're going to see this is, as Judge Huberman said, right on the border, and the case, the uh, the bill comes from a law enforcement agency in Pinell County, uh, with arrests uh, being made in Chandler. That's what generated this bill, mm. and vice versa. Mm. And then this is uh, one of the, we'll see today, I think there's, there's a couple of examples like this, uh, either in legislation or in rules, uh, where a lot of the procedures that we have been putting in place uh, during the pandemic uh, as to uh, our remote appearances and, 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 and working uh, with technology um, have that there's, there's, there seems to be an interest, you know, from the legislature, from the Supreme Court, uh, to continue going in this direction. Um, and so this is 
the fingerprint that allows that the, the offenses that need to be fingerprinted, which we know are the domestic violence, um, the, the, the DUIs, that's mostly what we see in our court, um, that they do not have to be printed at sentencing or in open court. Um, and so um, some of these procedures are, are, are going to be more flexible so the, the we can, well, you'll see later there's also the ability to allow more remote pleas, and so alternative ways to be fingerprinted would come in. And then there's the bill that authorizes the Supreme Court to allow electronic signatures for certain documents. So this is a trend that we've been seeing this year, uh, moving more to an electronic and virtual format. And then this is a change in competency evaluations. Uh, we see very little of these in the in the justice courts. In Maricopa, we actually send our cases to the superior courts. Um, and the Rule 11 uh, is dealt with in superior court. Uh, this just has to do with uh, medical records when they need to be um, provided or if they need to be provided. And then that the court may appoint one instead of two experts for competency exams in misdemeanor cases. All right. And so there, there were two bills. Um, and, and I'll take them out of order. We'll, we'll talk about 2484 does add a new misdemeanor profession of animal fighting paraphernalia uh, and makes that a class one misdemeanor. That added section 13-2910.10. Uh, the bill right before that, 2483, also added 13-2910.10. Uh, Jerry assures me that Legislative Council will fix this and that one of them will be 10 and the other one will be 11. Uh, but this one, 2483, causes a little more consternation. This will require that um, defendants be barred from owning animals for certain offenses, uh, such as cruelty to animals. Uh, but then they can apply after one year to the court where they were convicted. So if they were convicted in the justice court, they're going to come back to the justice court and they're going to, they can ask to uh, get their animal ownership rights back. The court must hold a hearing, must hold a hearing within 60 days. Uh, the defendant does have the burden of proof. The court shall order a psych exam if necessary. I, I hope that that's not going to be necessary. And the other wrinkle is if someone else in the house already owns a pet, the defendant can request a renewable one-year exemption. So my, you know, my wife can't possibly get rid of her little Pekingese. Uh, so, Your Honor, please, you know, give me a one-year exemption and then come back every year after that for the exemption. So I, I don't know what the what, what possessed the legislature to do this, but but they did it. Uh, the other really interesting one is. Uh, there is a provision for sealing records, and luckily this is not effective until January 1 of 2023, uh, so we have a whole year and a half to prepare for this. But in addition to setting aside convictions, defendants will be able to apply for sealing records. Now, sealing records, we're, we're going to we're, we've started to get a feel for that now with the marijuana expungements because that does require that the marijuana convictions and records be sealed. But we don't really seal records for anything else, and we're going to have to figure this out 
by January, January 1 of 2023. I assume the AOC will uh, have to generate a, a rule on how to do this, and they will have to generate forms as well. And, and if you didn't think we had enough to say when we are sentencing people uh, starting January January 2nd of 2023, when we sentence someone on the record, we will have to tell them that they will have the right to uh, file to have the record sealed. So our, our forms will have to change for that. Uh, and we're not going to encounter this all that much, uh, but House Bill 2162 does talk about uh, situations where class six undesignated felonies can be redesignated as misdemeanors, uh, and I don't think you, you'll need to worry about that very much. And 2460 is interesting. This does allow for detention officers to arrest people at uh, justice court, superior court, or municipal court, or if, if somebody goes to visit somebody else at the jail or at a hospital. Uh, and also in your own courtroom, uh, you can have a detention officer take custody of a person who you do remand into custody during a court proceeding. Uh, I, I would suggest that we not be doing that uh, to our defendants who voluntarily walk into court. We, we don't want to have somebody voluntarily walk into court have them leave in chains because that kind of uh, tampers their interest in coming into court uh, voluntarily. And then Senate Bill 1412 uh, adds more weight to my argument that we should not be putting people on unsupervised probation uh, because if you do, then if you want to terminate the period of probation early, you're required to determine whether to prohibit the defendant from contacting the victim and if necessary, issue an injunction against harassment against the defendant, which must be served on the defendant before probation is terminated. This bill does two things. So we're talking about this one here in the criminal portion, and then the other portion we'll talk about in the civil part uh, when we do talk about injunctions against harassment. Right, this next one is on bond forfeiture hearings when a defendant fails to appear uh, and a bond has been posted, the court will set that for a bond forfeiture hearing. This statute does require that if the poster submitted an email, that the notice be sent by email. Uh, this one ha also has a delayed effective date of January 1, 2022. And there were some changes to the leaving the scene statutes, and two of those are now upgraded to class one misdemeanors. There is a new misdemeanor for unlawful food or drink contamination. I think this was passed because people were going into supermarkets, opening ice cream packages and licking the ice cream and then putting it back. Or, you know, I think that was the genesis of, of this one. All right, let's talk about some civil statutes. We are not going to talk about evictions with one exception. Uh, we do have 
a, one more webinar. We, we hope that uh, this one will be the last one. Eight was not enough. Uh, this will be July 30th at noon. Uh, ironically, just this morning, the latest administrative order is issued. Uh, and so we will be talking about that latest administrative order. We'll be talking about forms. We'll be talking about how we are going to get out of this mess that we've been in for the last 18 months. The one eviction statute that we will talk about, and, and this is kind of ironic because we spent some time on the eight hour jail time statute, which was exactly one sentence. And this uh, statute is two sentences and it, it has already generated two emergency rule petitions, uh, but this does require the court to uh, allow a person to indicate to the court by uh, filing a written notice that they will appear virtually at the initial appearance and the court has to allow them to appear virtually at the initial appearance. Exactly how that notice is submitted to the court is the subject of the rule petitions. Uh, so we will, uh, and again, this goes into effect on September 29th. We're doing this now anyway, uh, but uh, starting September 29th, it will be mandatory for that first appearance. And when we do our part two of the limited jurisdiction updates, we'll tell you what, what the Supreme Court did with the rules. And I'm sorry, Judge Huberman, you were supposed to do that one. <laughs> I'll turn this back to you. Judge Huberman? Judge Huberman? Did we lose you? Uh, Judge Herman, we can't hear you. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was just saying thank you that uh, I had dealt with that eviction stuff and the virtual appearance. I was on every chain of email on that topic, so it was fine that you talked about that today. Give me a break okay. on that one. Um, this Senate bill changes, um, and it, 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 it expands, actually, the definition of harassment. Uh, you might remember that last year, harassment was expanded to include uh, one act of a sexual offense, um, and now it is expanded to include one act of um, the list of crimes of serious offense or violent or aggravated felonies, uh, those you can find uh, defined by statute, uh, they include you know, aggravated assault, sexual assault, armed robbery, burglary, kidnapping, uh, child sexual trafficking, um, drive-by shooting, discharging firearms. Um, all of these uh, arson, armed robbery. Um, so all of these expanded lists uh, now can give rise to an injunction against harassment uh, for just the one offense without having to be a pattern of harassment um, has been required at some out. And then this ties into the same uh, topic of the termination of probation. Um, if the probation, if the person is on probation and once probation is terminated early, uh, then the court must determine if they will issue an injunction against harassment uh, for that uh, offense. 
and um, in that case, it's necessary just to keep the victim separated from the defendant. Um, this bill now allows for award of attorney's fees and garnishment um, if it is allowed by contract or by the judgment. All it says is attorney's fees. It does not say they have to be reasonable. Um, so there's no determined amount here. Um, I guess the suggestion here is if we think that the, it's more than just a nominal amount, maybe to require a Chinese dollar affidavit. Um, it's, I'm not very clear yet on what they might be requesting. Um, yesterday, there was some conversation that some attorneys uh, have been asking for collection, post-judgment collection attorney fees. And so it's, I'm not clear if they're going to try to get those in now with garnishment attorney fees or they're still going to be considered post-judgment. Uh, so I think if we're unsure of what's being requested, uh, they should provide the China doll affidavit and obviously the contract to make sure that they are entitled uh, to collect those attorney's fees. Um, and uh, House Bill 2579 does amend the small claims statutes and, and now it says that the prevailing party in a small claims action is authorized to assign a monetary judgment to another person that is licensed in Arizona to collect debts. Uh, that person can appear as the prevailing party only for the purpose of enforcing the judgment. And that person does not represent the prevailing party but is treated by the prevailing party. What this basically does is it creates an end around, uh, around the unauthorized practice of law uh, so instead of hiring an attorney to enforce the judgment, um, they can assign the judgment to a licensed uh, judgment, uh, a licensed debt collector. Right. And we'll spend, we'll just go through the civil traffic changes pretty quickly. And the screen is not changing. There we go. All right, uh, so civil traffic hearing officers now qualify for redaction status, so they can go through the steps to keep their identities uh, on, on the internet uh, and their addresses confidential, just as judges can. Uh, parking violations now include blocking the sidewalk from a private driveway. House Bill 2425 makes more equipment violations civil violations. Uh, so if you do see a lot of commercial in, in your uh, precinct, then you're going to see this. Uh, 2294 does raise penalties for repeated failures to yield to emergency vehicles. Uh, so apparently somebody thought that that was an issue that needed to be addressed with escalating penalties. And House Bill 2006 uh, amends 28704 to uh, regarding slow speed and roadway turnoff, and that now includes bicycles and scooters. And neighborhood electric shuttle is now added to the definition of neighborhood electric vehicles, and uh, 28966 will limit the speeds and roadways for the neighborhood electric shuttles. Uh, we talked about Senate Bill 1829 already. That does require the court to dismiss a uh, civil registration violation if the person registers the vehicle. 
and Senate Bill 1843 does expand the definition of waste of finite resources. So that uh, that can now be done in 30 mile per hour zones in non-urban areas and 40 mile per hour zones in urban areas. If you're within 10 miles of that speed limit, that can be cited as a waste of finite resources rather than speeding. The advantage of that is that it's generally a lower fine and you don't get points assessed against your license. Uh, that also, I, since you can't get points against your license, I don't believe that will qualify for defensive driving school, but the fine should be low enough that it, it would be less than it would cost to go to defensive driving school anyway. If you get a lot of motor carrier violations, uh, uh, House Bill 2425 does make uh, a lot of changes there. So commercial vehicle violations are classified as civil traffic violations unless the violation results in an out-of-service order. And the driver of a commercial motor vehicle who violates or fails to comply with these statutes is responsible for a civil traffic violation and a penalty of up to 500 unless the violation requires the issuance of an out-of-service order. Right. And then there are a few other statutory changes that we will just touch upon. Uh, Senate Bill 1115 makes various changes to the notary provisions. This became important when we were limiting people in the, you know, when we were uh, limiting people from coming into the court, courts and social distancing. Uh, for those who are interested in running for office, 2365 make, uh, does allow you to keep your addresses confidential. Uh, 2617 makes some changes to the homestead provisions. 2893 is one of the budget bills, and in this budget bill, the legislature uh, took an action against, essentially against the Supreme Court for the eviction administrative orders. And what this says now is that the Supreme Court cannot issue administrative orders that affect real property rights. And Senate Bill 1832, uh, and this flies against everything we've done for the last 18 months, uh, but traffic survival school cannot be completed online. For some reason, the legislature wants you to go to those in person. Now, keep in mind, traffic survival school is not defensive driving school. Uh, we, our diversion is defensive driving school. Uh, traffic survival school is ordered by MVD when you get eight points in the, in the previous 12 months or when you run a red light. Uh, so by and large, we should not be issue, ordering people to traffic survival school. Uh, but if they are ordered to traffic survival school, they are going to have to do that in person. And we will briefly touch upon the rules. Judge Huberman? Um, sure. Um, so these criminal rules, these have already been in effect since the beginning of this year. Uh, but just to clarify that uh, defendants arrested on a felony warrants do have to have an initial appearance, but defendants arrested on a misdemeanor warrant um, are released upon, uh, they can be released without an initial appearance if they post the bond. Uh, this has become an issue uh, 
for the judges and for the clerks because now we need to make sure that there is a bond amount on the warrants uh, because the defendants are allowed uh, to post um, to post the bond. Um, if you are going to be signing these warrants for the judge, I'm sure that all the clerks have some kind of a system that they're using to, to put those bond amounts in. Um, but that, that is something that, uh, that you need to consider. Um, and then there was a, the, the next slide I know is 17.1. Uh, this is part of what I was explaining before. This expands the use of telephonic pleas. Um, they can be on video, they can be on phone, uh, they can be uh, submitted through online dispute resolution. Um, so, so it expands the use of, of remote appearances for plea agreements. It used to be that in the limited jurisdiction court, the defendant had to reside out of state or 100 miles from the court in order to be able to uh, do the plea by mail. Now that's no longer required. Um, and then the sentencing may also be done telephonically and can be done the same day or later or in person, however the, the judge prefers. And then this has also been in effect since January of this year. Um, the, the Supreme Court changed the, um, the rules allowing these legal paraprofessionals. Um, the idea was that uh, persons who were knowledgeable in some specific area of the law but were not attorneys uh, could somehow help um, litigants that would otherwise be unrepresented because they can't pay for an attorney uh, but maybe would be able to access uh, a legal paraprofessional. Um, this was copied off of uh, something that they're doing in Washington State. Um, at the time, to me, it sounded like a great idea. Um, I, I, I'm not sure about the way it's been implemented, and, and, and I have no way of knowing how many people we may have getting. Uh, I guess they just did the first round of testing for these uh, paraprofessionals, so we don't yet have uh, a list of who uh, has been authorized to do this. Uh, but you have to see the new rules about who is allowed to appear. Um, they, there's different categories of cases, and each other. There's some of uh, these uh, paraprofessionals can appear in superior court. It's not just for limited jurisdiction, uh, but for certain categories and for certain cases. Uh, so that's something that if you get somebody who appears in front of you in this capacity, um, you need to, to to inquire if if it's a capacity that's allowed. And Judge Huberman, Judge Driggs. Judge Gerald Williams and I have all been involved to some extent in helping to develop the exam for the legal paraprofessionals. Uh, and uh, let me reassure you, it is a difficult exam. They, they are required to do it closed book. Uh, and, and once I realized it was closed book, I'm thinking, uh, I don't know how many people will actually be able to pass this because they, if they're going to do civil, then they're going to need to know evictions, they're going to need to know contracts, torts, and orders of protection. Uh, that's an awful lot to know. So, uh, you know, that, as Judge Huberman said, I, I, we're not sure. 
I, I agree. I, I, I just, I had envisioned this that, you know, for example, a paralegal who worked at community legal services who was very knowledgeable in evictions uh, would be able to obtain a paraprofessional license in eviction and maybe be able to help community legal service by being able to represent uh, tenants in court for that limited purpose, but that's not how it, uh, that's, that's not how it has, has uh, it, it was put together. Now it's, they have to do all of civil, so I find that some of those people will definitely not be able to apply. Right, and um, again, these rules went into effect on January 1. If you're wondering why it's in this presentation, because as part of the Pro Tem policy, you're now required to do an updates class every year. So I did want to have one place where everything that went into effect in the year would be. Uh, so that's why I went back to, to what went into effect on, on January 1. So some of this will be familiar. Uh, of course, I wanted it to be in one place and we're gonna end up having to do two because the rules, uh, the Supreme Court will do the rules meeting at the end of August. Uh, but at least with the two PowerPoints, you'll be able to see everything that has happened in the last year. So uh, this rule 404B of evidence uh, was changed with respect uh, to um, evidence of other crimes. I don't think we're gonna see this very often, um, but there it is for you. And then there's other two changes on um, orders of protection, uh, again, have been in effect so you should be familiar with these. Uh, the court, uh, the, if you've done uh, exclusive use, the plaintiff does have to let the court know within five days. Uh, that can, and, uh, the court lets the defendant know that they can request a hearing. That is a, not a contested hearing. That is just gonna be on the issue of, well, now that the plaintiff has moved out of the exclusive property, can I move in? Uh, and, and they, you know, it, it can be as many as it takes to, to do that one. And then uh, Rule 38 was changed, uh, and it, it clarifies the defendant's entitled to only one hearing that they have requested in writing, uh, and it can be waived if they request a hearing in writing and then don't show up. They can't then request it again and harass the plaintiff that way by continually requesting hearings and saying, hey, I'm entitled to to one hearing and, and, and um, it didn't go because I didn't show. And Rule 38E clarifies what happens if uh, the parties don't appear. Uh, different judges were doing it differently and if both failed to appear, some judges were leaving it in place and others were dismissing. Now it does say that if, if both parties fail to appear, the judge will leave the protective order in place. And this change to the rules of civil, Justice Court Rules of Civil Procedure uh, was suggested by one of our JPs, Judge Hedinger, and uh, this uh, uh, does allow the, the courts to inform plaintiffs after nine months uh, that their case is going to be dismissed if they don't take action. Civil Traffic Rule 10A was amended uh, that does allow the defendant to admit responsibility prior to their appearance date. Uh, 
uh, and um, does allow them at that point to ask basically for pay for a payment plan if they can't make the payment in full. When the pandemic started, we amended our forms so that when people were turned away at the door, they could go ahead and do this in writing, and, and we did include the provision regarding the undue economic burden on the defendants. All right, the one rule that was not adopted on January 1 was the one on marijuana expungements, and Rule 38 was adopted on an emergency basis on May 12. It became effective a couple of days ago. This does adopt procedures and forms, and it most likely will become final after the August 24th meeting. And pending rules, there are a lot of them. Uh, as Judge Huberman said, uh, there, are, there are rule petitions regarding uh, peremptory challenges and uh, um, regarding uh, the automatic removal of judges. Uh, and there's the two rule petitions on the eviction hearings. Uh, there are a lot of them. We will do a, a, another session after the August 24th meeting. Uh, so please review your emails for when that will be set up. And we will talk about a couple of best practices. And there were a number of best practices on evictions in the last uh, year. We're not going to talk about those. But uh, Judge uh, Williams did write one on interest rates in civil cases. And we amended the best practice that we did on criminal cases filed in the wrong venue. Uh, that was because of a statutory change that was made last year. Uh, what we will probably have coming up is children as protected parties on injunctions. Uh, we, uh, a couple of our judges submitted a rule petition over a year ago on the issue of uh, children being requested as protected parties on injunctions against harassment uh, for parties that are in family court, but the injunction is requested against the new the new person in the ex-spouse's life rather than the ex-spouse. So it doesn't qualify as an order of protection and it doesn't qualify as part of a family court case. Uh, so uh, that best practice will most likely suggest that we not include children on those injunctions in that instance, that we refer those people to family court to seek emergency orders. Uh, we also are going to do a best practice most likely on uh, having courts review old warrants to uh, to see if they should be reissued or if they should be quashed. Uh, we don't have a, a current practice in place uh, for that is uniform across the courts for that. Uh, as we've discussed here, we're probably going to need to do one on garnishment attorney's fees. If, if there are others, and we may need to do it on the jail time as well, if, if there are others that you think that we need, please let us know. And thank you to Jerry Landau and to Paul Julian. Uh, Jerry, was there anything else that you wanted to say on legislation? No, I should. Yeah, here we go. I think I'm, let me get my, let me try to get my uh, camera on there. Uh, yeah, here I go. Uh, and I should just uh, maybe clarify something on the, the DUI bill. It's, and 
probably saying it's a mess is not really a, a good term because when you step back and take a look at it, um, there's a simple way of handling it. Uh, you read the statute and uh, it can be interpreted in, um, in one of two ways. And then you as the judge, uh, maybe some guidance from justice court administration, if you'd like, uh, can make a decision whether or not the credit is only for the first uh, uh, for the first um, eight hours once the person is booked, or if the credit can be across the board. And as a judge, you'll need to interpret that the way you best uh, you best interpret it. So from that standpoint, I think it's uh, uh, while the language may not be the clearest, how you approach it is um, is is pretty clear. Uh, there were. Um, uh, I don't know of any circumstances uh, specifically, but there are stories of uh, uh, of circumstances where persons have served a relatively short period of time before getting out. And, yeah, and I, one would think that's what the sponsor was looking to address. And if so, that's up. Uh, and there are circumstances, it's a legitimate issue. Um, but if you have other ideas in mind, I just don't, I just don't know. So just go ahead and look at it and make a decision uh, and then we just make our decisions and the prosecutors probably or law enforcement are the ones who will most likely, if they want to, look to bring it forward next year to make some changes or else we make a decision. And if it goes up to the appellate courts, the appellate courts will make a decision. So it'll, um, it's not that convoluted or complicated. Um, it'll work, it'll work itself, uh, it'll work itself out. Um, like in any other legislative session, there'll probably be some corrections next year, um, and that's um, that's un that's understandable. We see that every year, and as a judge, you get to make an interpretation, and you go on from um, and you go on from uh, uh, from there. The legislature did yeoman's work in what was a, a difficult session because, in essence, maybe two sessions combined uh, into uh, uh, into one. So. That's uh, basically, if there are any questions, please feel free to reach out. And that last slide does include a hot link to the Hightail site that's called New Legislation. And, um, and when you click on it, this is, this is what you're going to get. So really everything in this presentation is contained here for your uh, ease of accessing. And, and you can read it online or you can download it and, and read it offline, but uh, pretty much everything is there. Because we did go through these really, really fast, because uh, mostly we, we want you to be aware of what the changes are and you know, for anything that you're gonna need to know on, on a regular basis, and uh, that's an important part of your uh, job duties, you're, you're gonna need to, to download and, and read it yourself. So. Uh, we do have some uh, some time left. Are there any questions? You can put them in the chat box, or you can turn your at this point you can turn your cameras on uh, if you have any questions. And Charles, if yes. I can just maybe go take thirty seconds to go behind uh, behind the scenes, and Judge Reagan will know what I'm talking about because his daughter served the other Judge Reagan served in the legislature. Um, I want to give a shout out to Legislative Council, the drafters and the editors and legislative staff, the analysts who have to read every single bill. And it was the largest number of bills this year than ever, I believe. Um, and um, again, they did a, a yeoman's job as well in going through everything. They have to read every single bill. Um, and uh, so 
that's quite a that's quite a quite a task. So. Okay. Uh, are there any questions? And and if you're on the phone, I'm sorry. Uh, there were people who did not mute their phones, and so I had to to mute all of the phone people. So you can't ask a question, but for those who are present on, on uh, the webinar, you can ask questions. It was such a good class, but there's no questions. I just have a, a comment. This is Mary Blanco. I don't know if you can see me. Am I on? Can you hear me? We can hear you. We can't see you. Okay. Um, on 22-512, uh, assignment of small claims judgments, I just want to put the small claims hearing officers at ease. I don't believe that hearing officers are going to see this. This is after judgment. Correct? Okay. Thank you. Good point. Judge Reagan. I have a question for Jerry Landau. Can you explain how some of these uh, arcane minor uh, bills actually get originated? What, what is the driving force behind some of these? Because they don't seem like they're solving a huge, big problem. It sounds like they're uh, kind of addressing really minor, insignificant issues. Well, bills come, Judge, bills come in different ways or different forms. Uh, Constituents may bring an item to a legislator and based on personal experience or experience someone they know, and the legislature will move forward with it. Legislature, I've had circumstances where a legislator has seen something or heard of something and read the statute and determined in that legislator's mind changes need to be made. Um, there are legislative um, national groups. Senate Bill 1551 is a perfect example. Uh, let national groups who are looking to affect a change in law uh, in um, this or other many other states. Um, in this case, for instance, 1551, it had to do with um, persons losing their driver license, the belief being that it hampers their ability to get jobs and uh, puts them on unemployment and can't pay child support, et cetera. Uh, so that's a, that's a third way uh, of, um, of doing it, or a legislative staff person, legislative council may see a technical change to a statute that needed to be fixed. Uh, every year, legislative council keeps a list of um, technical changes that need to be made, and we'll work on them in the following year. So there are a number of different ways as how these uh, these bills get um, uh, get get passed, and um, whereas to some they may not make a difference, to others they might. It just to me, it's, it's a concern that for new judges in the future, if you lack institutional knowledge, or, you know, accumulated over the years, uh, how somebody can keep track of all this stuff kind of becomes a big challenge. Yeah, institutional knowledge is always uh, and always um, an issue. Uh, so I've been around probably longer than just about anyone, which basically means I'm getting old. And um, so I have some, uh, others do too. Um, but, and there's, there are records, of course, 
Secretary of the Senate, Clerk of the House has records. And if you really want to dig down, you can go ahead and um, you can go ahead and and um, and do that. Okay, thank you. you know, Mike, Mike, that, that, that you said that about keeping up to date. Um, it was funny because this morning I had a rainy calendar and my computer wasn't working and I actually had to pull out my statute book uh, to look up something. And the concern is always if you have a book that you're not getting the latest updated version. Um, and one of the things that I, I think at this point, you know, all of us have access to a computer on our bench um, and that I suggest is the best way to, to do, to consult statutes and to consult uh, the rules to make sure that we are getting uh, the latest, uh, the latest information. It, it, it is a lot to keep track of and a lot to remember. And you know, if, if leaving the scene now turns out that it's a class one misdemeanor instead of a class two or a class three, I mean, being able to to know that and not rely on the book that you had from last year um, is, is going to be very useful. So. Yeah, yeah. The, the legislative website, www.azledge.gov, the statutes under legislative council, look at Arizona revised statutes, the constitution's also there. They will be updated on September 29th. Uh, the rules, uh, once they're adopted, uh, they're sent to West's, uh, West Publishing, and they get updated fairly, uh, fairly quickly. Um, they're also available from the... Uh, uh, staff attorney's office, so the clerk of the Superior Court, or from uh, our government affairs office, myself. Yeah, I mean, I, just as a tip, I keep on my on my landing page on the computer on the on the favorites tab. I have a Title 13 and a Title 28, so I can click and automatically go there, and it makes it easier to find. And 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 I suggest that that's what everyone should be doing. That's you know, a good idea. The computer and not your books. Thank you both. Right, any other questions or comments? Yeah, oh, we do have a comment. Uh, Warner wants the web address that Jerry just mentioned. Let me show you something else on the judicial resources website that's the other hightail where i put all of the sessions including today's session if you uh, arrange everything by file name you'll get the zero zero ones first oh i just did it twice so i got them in reverse order that very first document is called links if you go to this you will have links to uh pretty much anything you're going to need. Uh, and these are hot links, so you can just click on them. And so there's the statutes, there's the court rules, um, there's the Arizona Administrative Code, the MBD Acceptable Violation Code, uh, our podcast. So uh, go ahead if, you, if you've never looked at that before and download this page and you'll find links to most everything you might want. All right, Carol, any I, do, other? I do. I do have a question. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, the paraprofessionals. I I'm thinking that they're not going to be able to come into a small claims 
hearing. Am I correct? The paraprofessional. I don't remember. I oh, would think because not it has to be an officer, blah, blah, blah. Well, so there's correct. a new rule now that incorporates these paraprofessionals. So, so who can appear in court rules have changed uh, because the paraprofessionals now exist. So um, honestly, I don't remember specifically if small claims was one of the topics. Probably not because small claims has always been had the, the criteria that it was not to have legal representation. Um, but I, I specifically don't remember. Okay, so we'll find out later. Try to look for it. Okay, somebody, yeah, somebody I, will I, clarify that for us. You know, of course, the rules are not that specific. They can appear in civil matters. Um, so. I, I would say that that would not include small claims because it wouldn't make sense if you can't have an attorney, then you, you shouldn't be able to have a legal paraprofessional either. Because okay. we always have, you know, the one person that will try to do what they can. <laughs> and we may have something like that happen. So we probably need some more clarification so that all the hearing officers are aware. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, anything else? I was trying to look, but it's rule or it's code section 7-210 of the, the code of judicial administration. And I tried to look real quickly, but can't get to it in the time allotted. Uh, so you take a look at that and we can all take a look at that. But that's where it's found. Okay. Uh, the uh, the Co-jet certificate is at the end of the packet. Turn those into Taj. Uh, this will be posted on YouTube. It will be posted as an audio podcast. Thank you all for uh, being present today. Uh, and we do have a session tomorrow on protective orders. Uh, keep in mind that if you are going to appear by phone, you need to do that before the session starts so I can identify you or I will dismiss you. Uh, I can't have any anonymous people in that session. Have a good day, everybody. Have a nice day. Good session.